Well, good morning again. It is good to see you all. If you're at home, we're glad you're with us. If you've got a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. We are beginning a new series. We've just gone through the book of Lamentations. I pray that was fruitful for you. And now we're beginning a series in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 5 through 7. And while you're turning there, i got a riddle for you. Are you waking up for a riddle? All right, fantastic. So there's a, a dad who has money beyond what you can imagine. This is a long, long time ago in the ancient Near East, let's say. And this dad has wealth unknown to mankind, and he has two sons, and he's decided that he's going to give his inheritance when he dies to his sons, but not to both of them, to only one of them, because he's just not a good dude, all right? And so he's given it to just one of them, but the way he's going to determine which one gets it, uh, they don't know. The day comes, the man dies, he leaves the inheritance, uh, the, his will, in the hands of an execu his executor who goes to his sons and he says, here's the deal, boys. He says, your dad's giving all of it to one of you and you're gonna have a race to determine which one of you gets all the inheritance. There's a city about 25 miles from here across the desert. You're gonna ride your camels to that city and here's the deal. Whoever's camel finishes last, that's the one who gets the inheritance. The boys are a little stumped, they jump on their camels, and they just sit there for hours. Uh, where do I go? What do I do? I, you know, I, I need to finish last. Like, how am I going to? And so they're thinking, my dad's cruel, first of all, right? Secondly, they're just not sure what to do. And after hours of sitting there, an old man walks by, and he looks at them because it's really odd. They're just sitting there, and he says, what are you, what are you doing? They tell him the whole situation. They told him what the executor of the will had said. And the old man ponders it for a moment, and he says, come here. And, and so they get down off their camels and come to him, and he whispers something in one of their ears, and he whispers something in the other ear. And they both jump on the camels and take off as fast as they can go to the city across the desert. Now, the riddle is, what did the old man say to him? I don't have all day, so I'm just going to tell you, right? Do you want me to just take one by one answers? Raise your hand. No, the answer is he said, switch camels. Wait for it. What did I say? Whoever's camel finishes last, that's the one who receives the inheritance. So they switch camels, right? Now here's the whole point. Imagine that you're in that scenario and there's this inheritance that's waiting for you, but you're not, you just can't figure out how to get your hands on it. Wouldn't that be infuriating? Wouldn't that be demoralizing? Wouldn't it be exhausting? Wouldn't it be discouraging? Well, as we come to the Sermon on the Mount today, we're going to do two things. I want to talk to you about the sermon as a whole and help you understand its purpose within Matthew's gospel and, and in the life of a believer. That's what I want to do uh, generally. And then very specifically, we're going to talk, talk about the first of these things called the Beatitudes, which is where the Sermon on the Mount begins, where Jesus' Beatitude is uh, from the Latin for blessed or happy, and you'll understand why that's the phrase that we use or the term we use for these uh, statements because they all say blessed are the person who, and then it tells us what the blessing is. And the first one of those is, if you remember it, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we want to focus on that reality. And in essence, what I want to tell you is this, is that what Jesus is teaching us there is not unlike the two boys who are trying to figure out how to get their hands on the inheritance, he's teaching us what it means or how we come into the inheritance of being those who receive the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew calls it both of those things, but here the kingdom of heaven. So the question becomes, how do we receive that inheritance? And the answer to the question is only those who are poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven. 
only those who are poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven. We could summarize it this way. In that one statement, Jesus is summarizing for us the most important doctrine in all of scripture, and it's the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. In one sentence, he summarizes that doctrine for us here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that's what we wanna do today. And I said we wanna start with sort of this more broad picture of the Sermon on the Mount itself. So if you're not familiar with this, let me give you a little bit of context here. Jesus is beginning his ministry. It's early on in his ministry. And in Matthew's chapter five through seven, which is part of a larger section of Matthew chapter five, verses nine, which I'll tell you why that's important in just a moment. But in Matthew chapter five through seven, we find Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And some of you, if you're not, if you don't, uh, remember it as a whole, you probably have heard some of the teaching that exists here. So there's a lot of really difficult commands that we find uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. We hear Jesus saying things like, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman in a lustful way, you've committed adultery with her. Uh, we hear him say things like, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you, if you harbor anger in your heart, Right, Or if you say, you fool to your brother, you're guilty. Right, And so there's this sort of way in which Jesus is giving us some really difficult commands. So here's what I want to do. I want to tell you, what is the purpose then of this thing called the Sermon on the Mount? Why is it here? Why did Jesus preach it? Uh, and what is he trying to help us understand? I want to give you a few sort of thoughts along those lines, which will help us then as we spend the next, um, I think it's 16 weeks that we're going to be in this Sermon on the Mount, just taking it piece by piece and examining it. Uh, as we work through it, you're going to need these sort of broader understandings to help follow along. They'll give you a little bit of background and context, and then I want to spend a little time talking about this first of the Beatitudes. So let's ask that question. What's the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? Here's how I would summarize it. The purpose of this sermon is to teach us how to live as citizens of God's kingdom. It's to teach us how to live as citizens of God's kingdom. He's essentially saying there's, there's a set of ethics that undergird my kingdom, and these are them. So I want you to learn how to live this way. I want you to learn how to walk in these things. So that's sort of as broadly as I can put it. If it helps you to simplify it, you might think of it this way. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to be asked, what's the greatest commandment? This is Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. And if you remember, how does he answer that question? He says, love the Lord your God, all your heart, mind, soul. And then he wasn't asked, but he says, the second greatest is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. In these, all the law and the prophets are fulfilled. He says, essentially, if you wanna know how to live, live this way. So you can think about the Sermon on the Mount, these three chapters, five, six, and seven of Matthew, as an explanation of further unpacking of that command. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. It's an explanation of those realities for us, uh, an unpacking of it, if you will. Now, where do we see that? Like, how do we know that this is the purpose of this sermon? Uh, well, the, there's a lot of ways we can know that, but I'll just give you one simple way where it fits within the flow of Matthew's gospel. So Matthew, when he's writing the story of Jesus' life, is telling it in a very intentional way. And every gospel writer is. They include certain things. They leave out other things, which is why all of these gospels don't include all the same stories. But in Matthew chapter 4, verse 32, right before the Sermon on the Mount begins, and then chapter 9, verse 35, right at the end of this section that the Sermon on the Mount fits within, we hear these words. Matthew says, Jesus went about Galilee, teaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and healing those with any disease. Those three things. 
It happens in, we're told that in Matthew 4, we're told it again in Matthew chapter 9, and it sort of bookends this section. Now inside of those two bookend statements, which are really a summary of how was Jesus displaying the kingdom, teaching us what it was like while he was teaching, he was preaching, proclaiming the gospel, and he was healing, he was showing the power that comes with the kingdom. It was a display, when Jesus would heal somebody, it was a demonstration of his power to bring the kingdom of God to earth. He was saying, this is the power of God on display. This is what the kingdom is like, where there's no more mourning or tears or crying. There's no more sickness, illness. Let me show you what it looks like. Let me give you a taste, if you will. Well, Matthews chapter five, six, seven, eight, and nine form a section within this gospel. And that section looks like this. Matthew five and six and seven are Jesus teaching or preaching, if you will, proclaiming what the kingdom is like. So in Matthew chapter five, we begin with the Beatitudes, which is, what is a blessed person like? And we'll cover that in just a minute. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about the Beatitudes and why they're here. But then after that, he really begins to say that the person in sort of chapter five and into chapter six, he really begins to unpack what does it look like to live in such a way that you know that God is right there with you? What does it look like to live that you know, not sort of like God is watching you sort of an idea, but that you know he's with you. He's right there. You trust him, you walk with him, there's a relationship. Like, what does that look like? And then Matthew chapter seven, he sort of turns a corner as he's explaining what the kingdom is like and he really says, what does it look like to know that at the end of all this, there's going to be a judgment? What does it look like to live in, in the fear of God? Not in the fear of like, oh my goodness, um, like I have to hide my face from him because if you're in Christ, you, you don't have to. But what does it look like to know that at the end of our lives, we're gonna stand before him? and to live in light of that, and to think that way. So he's teaching us about the kingdom in that way. But then, in chapters eight and chapters nine, there's a few other things that happen, but the, the majority of what happens in Matthew eight and Matthew nine is an explanation or a, a storytelling, if you will, of a bunch of miracles that Jesus does. So go back to what we heard in those statements. Jesus went about Galilee, what, doing what? Teaching, proclaiming the kingdom, and what? Healing. And within those bookend statements, we find those exact things happening. I'm teaching, I'm proclaiming what the kingdom is like, and I'm also healing. So what that tells us is that if Matthew 8 and 9 are all about showing the power of the kingdom and showing those stories of healing, then Matthews 5, 6, and 7 are the teaching and proclaiming of the kingdom part. And those bookend statements help us understand. That's what Matthew is wanting us to see here. Now, Matthew's gospel is... Is, is such a rich gospel. I mean, I, obviously they all are, so it's almost silly to say it's a rich gospel, but there's a couple things going on here where Matthew's main concern throughout his telling of the story of Jesus' life is really two things. He is predominantly concerned with this theme of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. He wants to explain what it's like. And so this sermon, it becomes really paramount in, this te- in the story of Jesus' life. But he also is predominantly, you know, Matthew was a tax collector, he was a Jew, and he's very concerned that his people, the Jewish people, would hear that in Jesus the kingdom of God has come. He wants them to understand. Now, he's, he's not uh, excluding anyone else, any Gentiles from hearing and understanding, but Matthew's writing is really aimed at, at his brothers and sisters from the nation of Israel. He's saying, I, I want you to hear that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one. He's the king we've been waiting for, and he has brought in the kingdom of God. So that's, that's sort of where Matthew's focus lies, and the Sermon on the Mount kind of aims in that direction. Now, so that's how we know that's what the purpose is, to teach us what it looks like to live as citizens of God's kingdom. That's the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. But let's make a few other observations that will help us as well. 
we have to ask, well, okay, so for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that's the purpose, that we would understand sort of how to live this way. But is that, you know, is that kind of it? And there's one other thing that I think is really, really helpful to understand. And it's, again, it's not the bookends of the whole section, but it's the bookends of just the sermon itself. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, look with me there. It says this, seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, there's two groups of people referenced there, the crowds and the disciples. And throughout Matthew's gospel, the crowds are going to be the people who are kind of around Jesus. They're kind of checking him out, but they don't necessarily believe. They're not followers. They're just kind of going, this is interesting. And, you know, they might turn one direction or walk away when he says something hard, but they, they might also kind of just, they linger on the edges they want to hear what he's got to say. They're listening in, but they don't, they don't believe. And the disciples is always going to be Matthew's term for those who are his followers. They're, they're in. So I'm in. He's the one. I'm following him, right? And so here at the beginning of Matthew's uh, telling of the Sermon on the Mount, it says the crowds were gathering, and we'll see that Jesus has great compassion on the crowds. He's not angry at the crowds. More often than not, he sees them, he has compassion on them, and it says he will teach them or he'll heal among them because they were like, what, sheep without a shepherd, we hear again and again. So there's, there's this heart of love expressed towards the crowd. But seeing them, we would expect then from Matthew 5, 1, that the next statement would be, so he sat down and he taught them, but that's not what it says, is it? says he saw the crowds and then the disciples came to him and he taught them so in other words what we find is that there's concentric circles of audiences here the sermon on the mount is primarily aimed at those who believe it's primarily for the disciples i'm going to teach you how to live in the kingdom of god i'm going to teach you what it looks like to live as someone who upholds this ethic and walks in it but it's not without purpose for the crowd it also has a purpose an intended purpose that the crowd would hear it and receive, there's, there's probably nothing more beneficial to an unbeliever, and that may be you here today, than to listen in on what God says to his own people and to examine that and to reflect on it and think about it. Huh, is this the kind of kingdom I should want to be a part of? Is, do I have a place within this? What's interesting is the end of this, and I won't make you go there, but at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, it says, after all the teaching has been done, after all that Jesus has said, Every bit of command that he's given. It says, and the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Now we're not talking about the disciples anymore. It says, the crowds were astonished because he taught as one who had authority. They're amazed. They're, so in other words, we see the dual purposes here. Jesus is primarily, and this is what we do every Sunday, isn't it? If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not my primary audience. You're, you're not who I'm aiming to talk to every week. We come here to be equipped with God's word as those who have believed in Jesus. That's what we come here for. And my job is to help you know God's word so that you can walk out of here and bear witness to it. That's my job, right? And, and to walk out here and bear witness to it myself as well. But if you're not a believer, man, there's no better place to be. Like you're in the right spot because you get to listen in kind of like the crowd here with Jesus's words and hear it and go, is this true? Is what he's saying right? Man, you're welcome here. We want you to keep coming and listening. So friends, here's, one thing I can just make an observation as we begin this series over the next 16 weeks, invite a friend. Let them listen in. It's the perfect place to come. Just listen to Jesus' words. This is exactly what he was doing. He said, here's disciples, I'm gonna talk to you. Now crowd, you're gonna get to hear this too. And there's, there's some benefit for you in hearing this. I want you to hear it, right? Okay, last thing about the sort of sermon as a whole, we'll talk about the Beatitudes then after that. 
So the last thing about the sermon as a whole is, already alluded to this, there's gonna be some really difficult commands that you're gonna receive. And there has been a lot of debate over the years. And some folks have said, inaccurately, uh, have said, well, all that's happening here is that Jesus is essentially doing what Paul says in Galatians, the law does for us, which is, you know, if you've read through the New Testament, one of the things is you got this Old Testament law, and it displays the holiness of God. And Paul says in Galatians, that the main purpose of that law is not to get you and I to try and live it, because we could never do it. The purpose of the law is to show you that you are hopelessly trapped in sin, so that you would know I need a savior who can keep the law for me, because I can't do it. And then if he keeps it for me and can give me the benefit of his keeping of it, then that's how I'm gonna be saved. And that's what Paul says is the purpose of the law. And kind of like that, as we hear these commands, one of the things that Jesus is in fact doing is he's raising the bar of our understanding of the law so high that you and I should, and those of you who do not believe, should hear as you listen to him I could never keep these commands the way I would need to keep them in order to be justified before God. I could never do it. That's part of what you're meant to experience as you listen to these commands. But it's not the only thing you're meant to experience because what some have done with that is they have said, okay, then all, that's the only purpose here is just to trap us under sin, but it tells us nothing about how to live and we're not even meant to obey these commands. It's just talking about what the kingdom's gonna be like someday and it's telling us that we can't get there on our own, we need a savior, and that's it. And so we just reject all the ethical commands that are in these verses. Can I just tell you that's not the way to approach this sermon? Because Jesus didn't just die to save us from the curse of the law, which is that we couldn't keep it. He also died to, through grace, empower us with his spirit to grow in our obedience to these commands. Think about it this way. The law is not just an expression, well, the law is an expression of the absolute moral purity and holiness of God. That's absolutely true. And anyone who comes face to face with that in any real way knows, I cannot measure up to that. I mean, I just, I can't. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that those commands are not to be followed to the best of our ability. And by the grace of God, his spirit empowers us to do it. Just use the Old Testament command of when Jesus said, don't commit murder in the 10 commandments. Well, and again, Jesus here is gonna raise the bar of that. And I recognize, man, I've been angry. I've harbored anger in my heart towards someone. So I'm guilty. Well, then do I just get to go out and commit murder whenever I want to? Is it okay for me to just harbor anger in my heart? Because the whole point is I'm trapped under sin, so Jesus does it for me and I can't do it, so... It's fine if I do it. What does Paul say about that in Romans chapter six? He says, should I just sin more that grace may abound? Should I just like abandon the idea that I would walk in righteousness because it's, because it's impossible for me to ever perfectly complete that righteousness? Paul's response is this massive double negative. In the Greek, it's meganoita, which is a negative on a negative, and the idea is may it never be that I would think that way because that's not how someone saved by grace thinks. Someone saved by grace doesn't go, I'll just sin, no big deal. They say, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work towards righteousness through the empowering, enabling grace of God. Not because I can justify myself by doing it, but because someone who is justified wants to do it. You with me? So these are commands to be obeyed. That's what I want you to hear. These are commands, as difficult as they are, 
to be obeyed. We are to grow in these things. And then the last kind of overarching thing is that the Sermon on the Mount begins with these things I, I already alluded to called Beatitudes. And I told you that's Latin for, it's from the Latin for blessed or happy. And there's a reason why Jesus begins with these. These statements, there's eight of them. You could say nine, but really the ninth is just kind of married with the eighth, and I think they're one, all right? So I'm gonna say there's eight of these. Blessed is the person who, and then what, what is the blessing they receive? And it tells you on the far end. So it says, blessed is the person, for they will receive this, and what's the condition upon which you receive that? So we'll see things like, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall, anybody? Inherit the earth, right? So what's the blessing? Inheriting the earth. What's the condition? Meekness, right? And the one we're gonna look at today, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What's the condition for receiving the kingdom of God? Being poor in spirit. Only those who are poor in spirit receive the kingdom. So what Jesus is doing is before he gives us a whole lot of commands, he's beginning with an assessment of the character of, a, of one of his followers. He's saying this is what's inside you. Now here's the beauty. He's saying by grace, this is already who you are. And it's also what you need to grow in. By grace, not by your own effort, this is who you are. If you have come to be a follower of Jesus, the only way that that's happened is, is that you have become poor in spirit. And now he's gonna say that's also where you must continue to grow. You must continue to grow in an expression of being poor in spirit. So these Beatitudes begin with character. You can think of it this way. Character before commands, right? Concern with what's in the heart of a person before what they do uh, with their actions. So there's no hope of obeying all the commands that are going to come unless we understand who we have become and who we must continue to grow to be, yes? That's the purpose of these Beatitudes uh, as we look at them and why Jesus begins with them. All right, now that said, let's look at our first phrase from Matthew 5, 1 to 3. Let me just read it for us. We'll reread verse 1 here. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let's ask the question, what, what does that mean? What does the phrase poor in spirit mean? And that's probably the key to understanding <clears throat> this idea, we're probably relatively clear that the blessing that is received by the poor in spirit is that they belong to God. They are brought into his kingdom. They receive that inheritance. So what does it look like then to be poor in spirit? Here's maybe the simple definition. Being poor in spirit means knowing that the only way to come to God is completely empty-handed. We cannot come to him with one empty hand and something in the other hand through which we would try to justify ourselves before him. And we subtly, we do this all the time. In fact, that's really what I wanna urge you to see because my guess is that most of you, when I say you need to recognize your complete spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God, that there is nothing that you have to offer him. That we're, if you've been in a church any time, you probably, yes, amen, right? That's exactly right, yes. I don't know that I'm gonna get too much pushback on that, but my, here's, I cannot answer this question for you. I can only ask it. How often do you actually, in reality, come before him and in your mind, in your heart, seek to be justified before him by something other than complete poverty of spirit? How often do you come with one hand empty and in one hand your intellect, 
with one hand empty and in one hand the good works that you've done to serve him? How often do you come with one hand empty and in one hand your family life? Both hands have to be empty. When you come before a holy God, there is nothing that you can offer him that would make you right before him. There's nothing unless you come completely empty hand and say, whatever I need to be justified before you, you're gonna have to give it. And that's exactly what he's done in Jesus. He has provided for you, for me, all that we need to be justified before him. But you have to come empty handed. This is why I said this is a summary of the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. And Jesus is just right out of the gate, hammering it. This is the one you need to know first. Before I tell you anything else, know this. The only people who inherit this kingdom are the ones who are poor in spirit. They're the only ones. So the gospel begins with, I mean, it really, it begins with bad news before it begins with good news, doesn't it? It begins with an acknowledgement, friends, it begins with an acknowledgement that you have nothing to offer God. And until you get that, right, until you understand that and are not offended by that, but embrace your absolute bankruptcy before the Lord, there is no entering the kingdom. There's no forward progress. When I was in high school, I was a very mediocre basketball player. Uh, but I, you know, I played for the, my high school team and we played North Mesquite uh, at one point. And I, this game has stood out to me because they had a point guard that was probably three times quicker than I was. But in my head, for whatever reason, I had an inordinate amount of confidence. It was unearned and undeserved. But I had it. And so we'd play, and I had to guard this guy. And first play of the game, I get right up. I mean, I'm as close as I can get to this guy. I'm like, he's not going anywhere. And he went around me like I was standing still, because I was standing still compared to him. He's right around me. So you would think, learn your lesson and do what? Back up, right? Did I do that? It took three quarters of the game before I realized that this was a bad idea and this was probably a better idea. Because sometimes, and look, until, while I did this, he just went around me and went around me and went around me. And I backed up and it was a little bit, I think he still went around me, but it was a little bit harder. All right? Until you accept you do not have the capability. I did not have the capability to stay in front of this guy, I just didn't. Until you accept that reality and come to God empty handed. I have no idea what the basketball equivalent is of that, what grace would be received to maybe be able to dunk all of a sudden. That would have been awesome. Now I'm just off in my own dream world. All right, listen, here's the last thing on this. I want you to be careful too of this. When I talk about poverty of spirit, I want you to be careful that poverty of spirit doesn't look like walking around loudly self-deprecating yourself. That's just, uh, uh, unfortunately, an unwise way to try and get rid of pride in your life and all you're revealing through that sort of loud, woe is me, self-deprecation. That's not poverty of spirit. Poverty of spirit is usually pretty quiet and still before the Lord because it understands its condition, but it also understands the great blessedness of having received the kingdom. And it, it can hold those things in tension. So it doesn't sort of mope around loudly weeping and wailing as to its own insufficiency 
Just be careful about that. Now, let me answer this too, because you know you may ask the question, well, what if I'm just like, what if I'm naturally, one of the things we're gonna see in this is that you'll know people who are not Christians who sort of seem to naturally display something similar to some of these traits where you'd say, well, they seem humble or they seem meek or they seem to be you know, able to mourn things in the world that, that are worth mourning, that kind of thing. None of the things that Jesus is talking about are natural dispositions in a person. So poverty of spirit is not sort of a natural low assessment of self that some people have, right? That's not what poverty of spirit is. Poverty of spirit is a work of grace. And every one of these beatitudes is a work of grace and is distinct from just a natural disposition that leans in a certain direction which might look a little bit like it. And in future weeks, I'm gonna try and unpack the difference between those things for y'all at different points when we talk about that. Like what's the difference between meekness, like true grace-given meekness and just the person who seems to be um, kind of just thinks about others naturally but is not in the Lord. How do I make a distinction between those things? But let me say this as it relates to this week. When you think about poverty of spirit, when it's a, that it's a work of grace, friends, this is not the same thing as just low self-esteem. And some of you might think to yourself, well, is it wise to counsel someone to recognize their bankruptcy before the Lord, their helplessness, that they have nothing to offer? Doesn't that just seem to like beat people up? And what if they already naturally have low self-esteem? Isn't that then a bad idea? Friends, I wanna tell you this. I believe with all my heart. The answer to low self-esteem is not self-help or recognition of your own goodness. The answer is seeing that a holy God has rescued and redeemed you. That's the answer. It's not saying I gotta build myself up in my own sense of whatever identity categories I possess and why I'm good and why those things are valuable and so I can feel better about myself. That's a dead-end road. Can I just tell you that's a dead-end road? Because you're gonna get the end of those things and you're gonna try to have built yourself up, your esteem up, by assessing that these identity categories are somehow making you valuable and then you're gonna realize that they actually didn't ever at any way, in any way. And what you're gonna be left with is you're gonna go, I, I traveled this whole road and I'm back where I started. The only way through that is an assessment that the God of the universe has created you, designed you, and now brings redemption to you in Christ Jesus. So embracing poverty of spirit is actually the key to dealing with low self-esteem. Does this make sense? So crucial, so critical that we understand that. It's really nuanced, I know, but now listen, let's say here too, this is not the way of the world, and one of the things throughout the Sermon on the Mount that we're gonna see is that the whole message, I mean really one of the underlying things that it's not really gonna be said, but it's just there, is you're supposed to be different than the world around you, Christian. You're supposed to be different. In fact, like looking like them doesn't help them know Jesus. Looking different than them helps them know Jesus. So be distinct, be different. Don't look like the world. And that's gonna be the assumption, is that you're going to look different. If you're gonna follow Jesus, if you're in this kingdom, you're gonna look different. And friends, can I just tell you, poverty of spirit is not something the world celebrates. It's not something the world loves. The whole mindset of the world is self-improvement, self-fulfillment, self-actualization, self-reliance, self-belief. What's the common denominator with all those things? Yeah, there's a word there, wasn't there? 
That the world is all about building up whatever you are. It's good. You're right. It's okay. Be that thing. Be the fullest version of that thing. Believe in yourself. That is the mantra of the world, and it is not the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel is poverty of spirit. I, have, I am nothing. I have nothing. I am nothing. I have nothing. God's grace is strong. All glory to him. That's the way of the gospel. And li- listen, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on this beatitude in 1950s London said something that I think is really, I mean, how fitting it is for even our day and age now, and we're talking about now 80, 70 years ago. Um, listen to his words here. He says, talking about the world's perspective, he says, if you want to succeed in a profession, the great thing is to give the impression that you are a success. So you suggest that you are more successful than you actually are. And people say, that's the man to go to. That is the whole principle on which life is run at the present time. Express yourself, believe in yourself, realize the powers that are innate in yourself, and let the whole world see and know them. I thought that was a pretty good summary of our day. Would you say? Let the world know about your strengths. Let them know about your powers. Let them know about your goodness. Make sure that they're aware that you did that thing. That's the key to success. And friends, think about how challenging that is to live the opposite way of that. John Piper, 30 years ago now, not 70 years ago, said something similar, commenting on this same beatitude. Uh, And he references Ralph Waldo Emerson here and Terry Cole Whitaker, who... You maybe know the first, but maybe not the second, but it's from some times a little while ago. It says this, Christ is a stumbling block and an offense to Emerson and to people like Terry Cole Whitaker in our day. Yes, and even to us, and here's the part I want you to get, because it takes the disease that we hate most, namely helplessness. Instead of curing it, makes it the doorway to heaven. That's what the be. This is what blessed in the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven means. He doesn't want to cure your helplessness. He doesn't want to cure your inability to accomplish what you need on your own before him. He's actually going to make that helplessness the doorway into that kingdom. You have to come to him poor in spirit. So how do we grow in that? And I just want to give you a quick reflection here and then we're going to turn again to worship and song. So I want to give you a couple of thoughts by way of application. So the first is this. If you're in Christ Jesus, the only way to be in him is to be poor in spirit. So it's something that he has born in you. You have poverty of spirit if you are truly in Christ. And if that's the case, then you should rejoice in that. Rejoice that by the grace of God, there's been a poverty of spirit that's enabled you to come empty-handed to God. And part of rejoicing in it is how if you rejoice in it, you'll grow in it. So rejoicing in that, recognizing its presence is a good thing. If you're not a follower of Jesus, can I, if you're listening in today, kind of like the crowd that Jesus had around him as he taught this sermon, could I encourage you in one way? If you're thinking, well, I want to think more about this poverty of spirit and whether it's really the gateway to the kingdom. Like, is what Trent is saying, is that true? Here's how I would encourage you to explore this a little bit. Just begin reading the Gospels. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. Each one has something to say about Jesus' life. And as you read them, I don't want you to compare yourself to anybody else. I want you to compare yourself to him. As you begin to read 
and see who he is and what he said and what he did, begin to ask yourself, who is this and who am I in comparison to who he is? As you begin to reflect upon that, I wonder if you might not begin to see the beginnings of what poverty of spirit really means. Because poverty of spirit does not come and cannot come. Now listen, believers, now listen. It cannot come from comparing yourself to someone else. It can only come from comparing yourself to a holy God. You never get poverty of spirit by saying, oh man, that, that person's a lot better than me, but you're always gonna say, but I'm kind of a little bit like them, or maybe you're gonna look at them and you're gonna say, well, I'm better than they are. Like Poverty of spirit never comes that way. Poverty of spirit does not come until you see yourself in light of who God is. And then lastly, what's really helpful, I find, is to see how the saints of old have expressed this idea of poverty of spirit as they've come into the presence of God. So just listen. I just want you to listen with me now. Job, in Job 42, verse five and six, he said this. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's poverty of spirit. Isaiah 6, 5, probably the most famous one. Woe is me, Isaiah says, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What about John the Baptist? In John chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, it says, John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. That's poverty of spirit. If you want a litmus test, see how you react to Isaiah 41, 14. Isaiah, speaking to Israel, says, Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your redeemer is the holy one of Israel. Think about that for a minute. Fear not, that's good news. Yes, awesome, fear not. You worm. Wait, what? Yeah, it's exactly what you are. Fear not, you worm. I'm the one who helps you. I'm your redeemer. I'm the strong one. William Carey, who was a missionary, one of the uh, fathers of modern missions, spent 40 years on the field and just immense impact for the gospel. He translated the Bible into six, fully into six different languages. He translated it partially into 29 others. And someone asked, like his biographer asked, I think, what was the secret to that kind of longevity? I mean, I'm talking about through disease and sickness and all kinds of ailments and difficulty and trials and tribulations. He persevered in service to the king over long years, far from his home, far from his country. And when someone asked what was the secret, the answer is found on his tombstone, which he told people, what to, he said, this is what I want on my tombstone. And the secret is poverty of spirit. William Carey, born August 17th, 1761, died June 9th, 1834. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. That's poverty of spirit a wretched, poor, pitiable worm, but never forget the last sentence. On thy kind arms I fall. Friend, fear not. 
Jesus, the one who preaches this word, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As you come to him empty-handed, has everything that you need. You can fall onto his kind arms without fear that in embracing your impoverishment, your bankruptcy, you're now coming with nothing. Nothing is exactly what you need. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good beyond measure, strong beyond measure, wise beyond measure. So help us to hear your words, receive them, take them in, and know that they are true. Pray for my friends here who are not of faith, have not believed in you, that in your words they would hear your beauty and believability, that you by the power of your spirit would spark them to see the truth. For those of us who are yours, help us to obey. Help us to see what we are by your grace and to walk in it. Now receive the praises that we offer to you. Far below what you deserve, but we bring them to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.